Hey, Curbsiders, this is Dr. Carolyn Chan, and I'm excited to announce a new mini series, The Curbsiders Addiction Medicine. We have 11 great episodes for you where we cover core addiction med topics tailored to the general internist, and we will be releasing these weekly episodes starting in July. I'll be joined by my co hosts, Dr. Sean Cohen, Dr. Kenny Morford, and Dr. Natalie Stahl. We believe it's important as ever for internists to play a key role in providing evidence based addiction treatment. So, be sure to tune in this summer wherever you listen to podcasts. You can learn more by checking out our website at thecurbsiders.com or email us at curbsidersaddictionmed at gmail.com. The Curbsiders podcast is for entertainment, education, and information purposes only, and the topics discussed should not be used solely to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any diseases or conditions. Furthermore, the views and statements expressed on this podcast are solely those of the host and should not be interpreted to reflect official policy or position of any entity, aside from possibly cash like moral hospital and affiliate outreach programs, if indeed there are any. In fact, there are none. Pretty much, we are responsible if you screw up. You should always do your own homework and let us know when we're wrong. Welcome back to the Curbsiders. I'm Dr. Paul Williams. I am joined by my co-host tonight, Dr. Molly Hoyblein and Dr. Nora Toronto. Molly, how are you? I am doing great, Paul. Thank you. And Nora, how are you doing? Really well. Great. <laughs> Convincing, <laughs> solid, good talk. This really captures the chemistry you'll hear on the rest of the episode, um, which is where we talk to the great Dr. Rahul Panala uh, about the management of gallbladder disease, his workup and approach, and, and how he goes from diagnosis to actual management. In just a moment, I'll let Dr. Molly Hoyblein tell us all about our guest and a little bit more about the topic. But before we do that, Nora, will you remind the audience what we do on this show? Indeed, I will, Paul. We are the Internal Medicine Podcast, and we use expert interviews to bring you clinical pearls and practice-changing knowledge. We have a fantastic conversation with our guest, Dr. Rahul Panala. He's an associate professor of medicine and consultant gastroenterologist at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. He's the director of the Pancreas Clinic and Endoscopic Bariatric Therapeutics Program at the Mayo Clinic in Arizona. His clinical and research interests include pancreatobiliary diseases and endoscopic bariatric therapies. His other interests include global health and innovation in medical device spaces. Uh, so we had a great conversation about gallbladder disease, uh, focusing initially in the outpatient realm on what kind of history you are looking for to feel confident about symptomatic gallbladder disease, complications after gallbladder surgery, and then briefly reviewing inpatient evaluation for gallbladder diseases. Without further ado, let's get to it. Rahul, thank you so much for joining us. Um, we usually start with some rapid fire questions to get you to know you a little bit better. Um, so before we start, could you give us a one-liner to describe yourself, ideally including something that's outside of, of medicine? Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm uh, 45 years old. I'm a dad of three, and I live in Phoenix, Arizona, or sunny Phoenix, Arizona, uh, with my wife. Um, I love to travel. I love to teach and uh, do photography. COVID notwithstanding, so what's your favorite place that you've traveled to in the past, let's give it, say, five years? I think my favorite place is Ethiopia. And uh, it's absolutely the most beautiful, beautiful country. Um, and strong, and it's the birthplace of coffee, which I like. So <laughs> excellent, too critical. Yeah, I know you were thinking a lot about this one. So, do you have a favorite failure that you'd feel comfortable sharing with us, and what you learned from that? Oh, there have been many, um, but I think one of the things is when I first became came on staff, I was trying to get a project off the ground, and you know, you're a young staff, lots of enthusiasm, and you try to kind of keep going, and um, 
didn't work out, and I think that it taught me to really step back, listen to everybody around the table, um, get lots of opinions and thoughts, and you know, take on people for the ride, and then they'll be with you. So always good advice. Yeah. Do you have any favorite books that you would recommend to learners, or just generally that you would recommend that you've been enjoying recently? I used to read a lot of fiction, but these days I'm reading more about, uh, I guess, leadership and stuff. I think. The one book that has really touched me is Start With Why. Um, you know, always stop and ask the question why in anything that you're doing. And really, I think that opens up your perspectives. I haven't heard of that one, actually. That, might be, that might be a new one. Yes, yeah. <laughs> strong work. <laughs> and is that like a why am I doing this or why it's is more this like, problem here? Um, no, I guess when you're, um, let's say you're there's a proposal or there's something mm-hmm. that you know, we, we want to do, I think just stopping and asking why would this, why do we want to do this? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what is the problem we're trying to solve? Or, you know, um, I, I, it's one of those leadership sort of uh, books, but I mm-hmm. think it has relevance way beyond the standard sort of leadership issue books, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Excellent. But it sounds less like an existential why I'm here. <laughs> that too. <laughs> 10,000 is a men's performance activewear brand built for serious training. Um, they, they sent me a couple of pairs of shorts, and I will say after looking at their website, these shorts are probably better suited for the type of person who, I don't know, they, they do the thing where they flip the big tire around or they have the, the heavy ropes and they do the rope flappy thingy. Um, that's not me. I am just a man who runs to keep from becoming sad. And even that being the case, I can't tell you how impressed I was with how well they fit, how comfortable they were, how lightweight they felt. They were, they were so lightweight and comfortable at times I had to look down to make sure I was indeed wearing shorts. Happy to report that I was. 10,000 works with top strength and endurance athletes to co-design, test, and develop their gear so you know it's heavily vetted before it shows up at your door. Kit up now and get 15% off your purchase. Go to 10,000.cc slash curb. That's T-E-N. T-H-O-U-S-A-N-D dot C-C slash C-U-R-B to get 15% off your order. They offer free shipping, free returns, and a lifetime guarantee. Get the highest quality, best fitting, and most comfortable training shorts you've ever worn from 10,000. This episode is brought to you by Blue Land. And audience, you know that I'm a fan of Blue Land. I use Blue Land cleaning products in my home because guess what? They're simple, they're easy to use, they smell great, and they work great. And why do I care about Blue Land? Well, it's because... Each year, an estimated 5 billion plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away. And if that's not bad enough, each of them is made of more than 90% water, which is a lose-lose for the planet. So stop wasting water and throwing out more plastic and get Blue Land's revolutionary refill cleaning system instead. Their idea is simple and it's beautiful. You just buy a bottle once and you refill it forever. You fill the bottle with warm water. Pop in one of their hand soap or spray cleaner tablets and within minutes you have a powerful cleaning product that smells great and works great. You can start with their clean essentials kit or you can check out their plastic free laundry and dishwasher tablets. They have something for every part in your home. Right now you can get 20% off your first order when you go to blueland.com slash curb. That's 20% off your first order of any Blueland products at blueland.com slash curb. Blueland. Dot com slash curb. All right. Well, great. That I think that is excellent. And with that, I think that we can probably move on to a case. And I think we're starting with Eve. So Molly, why don't you tell us about Eve and what is going on with her and, and figuring out how we're going to help her? 
Excellent. So Eve is a 46-year-old woman who presents to clinic complaining of intermittent abdominal pain. She describes having two episodes, one two months ago and one last week, where she experienced severe upper abdominal pain associated with some nausea, but no vomiting. These occurred after dinner, and it made it hard for her to sleep and lasted a few hours. She has tried taking an antacid for this and wasn't really sure if it made a difference in her pain. She has a history of GERD for which she takes a PPI, and looking back at her chart, she's had a few visits and prior evaluations for abdominal pain over the past 10 years, which were unrevealing. But she reports that these recent episodes felt different. Beside the PPI, she also takes a combined estrogen-progesterone birth control pill. On exam, her vitals are normal, her BMI is 27, and she had mild, diffuse upper abdominal tenderness to palpation with no masses or rebound. So to start off, since we're talking about gallbladder disease today, um, can you talk to us about what the function of the gallbladder is and why do gallstones develop in some patients? Yeah, so the gallbladder, um, we don't always think about it, but it's a reservoir that really concentrates bile and enables uh, sort of the delivery of um, highly concentrated bile in a very regulated fashion to the intestine, to the duodenum. And structurally, I think it's important to sort of have, as most of your listeners would know, it connects to the common bile duct with the uh, cystic duct, which is this sort of um, has these valves which regulate um, the flow of bile. And gallstones can develop for a variety of reasons. Gallstones are very common. Um, The most common cause for gallstones is stasis of um, of, of bile and uh, can happen with a variety of uh, reasons. One is patient factors, you know, increasing age, um, obesity is a big risk factor, medications can be a big risk factor, um, several medications, um, including birth control pills, as in this uh, example or in this patient. Um, then um, there's some specific situations where you can think about gallstones, probably more germane for the hospitalized um, patient, like with patients on longstanding parental nutrition. There's some specific populations that are very high risk, Native Americans, uh, Mexican-American populations. So that's sort of the general risk factors for gallstones. That's extraordinarily helpful. And I think we made this case we know we're doing a gallstone presentation. On the other hand, we, we threw in some stuff. Molly made this a little bit tough for funsies. So we have this patient who has who has GERD, who has a PPI, who's been coming in with with abdominal pain that that maybe or maybe is not different. So I'm wondering, in this particular patient, you know, you gave us some risk factors, but overall, could you sort of tell us what historically with with Eve here, and sort of what historically in general points you more towards gallbladder disease versus something like dyspepsia or functional abdominal pain? Yeah, no, that's a critical question. I think this is one of those uh, where history and getting an um, accurate history is very helpful. Here it's very helpful where Eve has a fairly, I would say, typical presentation. You know, her pain starts after about 30 minutes or so after she eats, and gallbladder pain or biliary pain um, is, is not subtle. It can be fairly severe pain, and patients usually describe a crescendo pattern. So it really builds up and then sort of eases up a little bit and then really comes back up. And um, it usually, the other thing is time. Gallbladder pain or biliary pain lasts for at least 30 minutes, probably up to a few hours. And they're usually up at night because typically, you know, it's after a big meal in the evening, uh, they're up all night. They'll, they'll give you that history. And uh, if you really probe, they've had sort of similar episodes of pain 
leading up to that larger or the more severe attack. Maybe they didn't think that much about it. Now, differentiating it from you know, other causes of pain like dyspepsia, things like that can be very helpful. And the other really clinical pearlry is that other symptoms such as bloating and gas and flatulence typically are not associated with really solid biliary colic. So teasing those uh, symptoms out can be helpful. And is there anything you'd look for on physical exams specifically to differentiate? Yeah, so physical exam really depends on when you're doing the exam. Um, I typically, uh, assuming that the patient comes to you after the attack or let's say the next day or something, you can get sort of nonspecific physical exams, sort of diffuse tenderness a little bit. It's very hard to elicit a right upper quadrant uh, tenderness because the origin of biliary colic, if you think about it, is intermittent obstruction of the cystic duct. So that usually has passed once the pain has passed. So they usually describe you'll get some diffuse tenderness, but without any rebound or guarding. And is nausea and vomiting common? Nausea is very common in biliary colic, typically. Vomiting can be variable, but typically patients will report uh, nausea with pain. And are patients usually, if you probe them, able to localize it to the right upper quadrant, or it might be more diffuse? Yeah, so location can be quite, may or may not be helpful. Many times the patients report diffuse abdominal pain. Many times it can be epigastric. It can be right right upper quadrant, and if it is, it's somewhat helpful, but I would say it doesn't have to be right upper quadrant. And I saw some descriptions of radiating to the back being possibly more associated with gallbladder pain. Is that something that you see? or it, it can be quite variable, honestly, the pain characteristics and the location of the pain. I think if the pain is in the right upper quadrant and is radiating to the back, I think the two things that come to mind are gallbladder and pancreatic pain. Mm. Um, the straight shooting up to the back part typically is, is more characteristic of pancreatic pain. Now, if a gallstone is stuck in the distal bile duct and causing something like that, you could see that, but mm-hmm. um, can be variable. In terms of the worker for this patient, I'm just, I could imagine sort of a different number of ways this could go. I could see someone maybe just checking, say, a hepatic function test, maybe a CBC to rule out sort of a microcytic anemia. Um, other people might just double up on the PPI. I think some people would just would maybe go for the ultrasound right out the gate. So for someone... And probably by the time they get to you in practicality, a lot of this has been done. But let's say you're getting this patient de novo for the first time. What would your workup look like for Eve? Yeah, so I think Eve here is presenting with fairly typical biliary colic. And I think that, um, I think a hepatic function panel is a reasonable thing to do. And I think I would do an ultrasound. I think it's very important to point out that the ultrasound is really the, um, initial test that is recommended by all guidelines and um, gives us a ton of information. Are there any patients in whom you would not get any labs or imaging? So if the nature of pain that is being described is sort of more like a dyspepsia and you have no other risk factors, there's no alarm features, anything like that, then young patients without anything else really, I think we can treat symptomatically. And are there... You mentioned the ultrasound being the primary imaging modality. Are there times when you would order other testing for images? 
Yeah, typically I think for um, the vast majority of patients, ultrasound will give us, you know, a, a lot of information. Occasionally, you know, uh, we would get a, um, a CT scan or an MRI scan very selectively. I think if you're talking about gallstones, if there's concern for um, a, a stone in the common bile duct, let's say their liver tests are really high and the gall, uh, the ultrasound is not revealing or is showing only stones without any significant inflammation, um, ultrasound is not that great for common bile duct stones. It's great for gallbladder stones. But let's say your patient's continuing to have pain and it's not, you know, uh, relenting or the liver tests are really high, then I think we need more information. In that sense, MRI with MRCP probably has the highest sensitivity. And in those selected patients, that's probably what I would go. And most people will have multiple stones. So even if they've passed one, you would probably still see some leftover. Is that true? Or theoretically, they could have just one that caused an episode and then they're fine. Yeah, theoretically. I mean, um, most people will have multiple gallstones. Yeah. And uh the biliary colic, I think it's a, it's important to um, differentiate from a gallbladder stone from a common bile duct stone. Common bile duct stone, when they pass it, it's fairly significant pain. They usually have a bump in their liver test and they, it tends to um, decrease. But uh, gallstones typically in the gallbladder, patients will have multiple usually. Mm-hmm. And one more question about imaging. Sorry. It's just I, an interrogation. Yeah. Um, so uh, I've had a couple of interns actually ask me this question, so I'm just going to punt it to you. Okay. Um, That's why he's here. Uh, so say we have a patient who got a CT and they're having this kind of poorly characterized abdominal pain that we think could be biliary colic. Is there any added utility to getting a right upper quadrant abdominal ultrasound after a CT you've already gotten? The answer is actually yes. Okay. Because um, CT is not great for gallstones or sludge in the gallbladder. And ultrasound actually is a much better test in terms of sensitivity and specificity if you're suspecting um, stones or sludge in the gallbladder. You know, when you look at CT, ultrasound, and MRI, I think the take-home message is ultrasound is great for gallstones and sludge in the gallbladder. MRI is great to identify stones or really evaluate the common bile duct and the pancreatic duct. CT, I would do it in two instances. One is if the diagnosis is not clear, you want to rule out pancreatitis, you want to rule out something else, or you're really suspecting a complication of gallstone disease. Either a really sick patient, perforated gallbladder, you know, unique situations that way. So that's how, uh, you know, I typically use these tests. Hope that answers that Definitely question. Definitely does. Thank you. <laughs> Great. Well, let's move on to the case. So Eve gets her outpatient ultrasound, which was normal, except for some non-obstructing gallstones. You tell her the results, and she reports that her mom had a cholecystectomy and had a lot of complications afterward, and she really would rather avoid surgery. Um, so... What are the chances of having a complication from her cholelithiasis if she chooses to avoid surgery? What are her chances of progressing to something like um, gallstone pancreatitis or acute cholecystitis? 
Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. I think that uh, one is Eve's mom had gallstones, so there's a genetic predisposition, and she probably, mom had her gall, gallbladder out because, you know, she had problems. So there is definitely a genetic predisposition. In terms of if you take asymptomatic gallstones, people just walking on the street and you do an ultrasound and you have a gallstone, only about a quarter of them do get into trouble over a 10-year period. So that's where the recommendation of just watchful waiting for, you know, and not doing a cholecystectomy for asymptomatic patients comes from. So the vast majority of them do fine. But in Eve's case, she's already had biliary colic, so there's at least a 30% chance that she's going to continue to have biliary colic. So the risk of a serious complication is about 1% to 2% based on the studies. So roughly about you know, 2% will have cholecystitis or you know, uh, significant serious complications. Is that per year? It's per year, okay. yeah. Yeah, I guess it's sort of a variation on that question. For me, this is almost a little bit of a nightmare scenario just because gallstones are so common on ultrasound. So I guess I'm wondering how confident are you in your diagnosis that this represents symptomatic um, cholelithiasis once you actually have this ultrasound that doesn't show cholecystitis or, or any other changes, just the presence of gallstones? Do you feel great about where we're at right now or do you need, would you want more confirmatory information of any kind? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a moderate degree of confidence is the best way to characterize it. I don't know that. (laughs) No, I didn't need a number. That is Uh, is, is fine. I don't know that additional testing will really help. I think if, you know, she had elevated liver chemistries, maybe that might tip the balance, but then you would wonder why and has she passed a stone into her bile duct? But, you know, this is sort of, she has typical biliary colic. She has a stone in the gallbladder. No other etiologies, though, you know, she's on a PPI and there's this history of abdominal discomfort over the past few years. So it's a little unclear what that truly is, but she tells you that this is different. So I would say, I think, I think it's, I feel moderately certain. (laughs) (laughs) No, I like those odds. That's great. Thank you. And in the meantime, while she is deciding whether or not to get the surgery, are there any medications or lifestyle changes that she can make to reduce her chance of having more symptoms? Yeah, medications, the short answer is no. Uh, there's hard, really no medication has been shown to decrease the risk of complications. Uh, um, the whole era of gallstone dissolution therapy has uh, come and gone, and uh, most people don't even know about it anymore. So the short answer on medications is no. You could try symptomatic treatment. PPIs can sometimes be helpful anecdotally, um, though I think in terms of lifestyle, it's um, it can be quite helpful. I think diet is the most immediate thing that she can make a change. So eating a moderately sort of uh, low-fat diet, um, meaning, you know, trying to avoid a, a, a saturated fats, um, things like that, which can precipitate uh, biliary colic. Um, I see that her BMI is 27, so obesity is a risk factor, so patients... Uh, with obesity or overweight, can try weight loss um, strategies, though that's more of a longer term um, strategies. Um, medications, again, she's on birth control pills that have been shown to increase the risk, but in this case, I don't think that that makes a big difference in the short term while she's deciding. There's a question that we had later on, I think actually might even fit here, but how would this, before we sort of decide what we're going to do to Eve, how would your decision-making change if you saw gallbladder sludge on the ultrasound instead of stones? Because I feel like that's something that is also frequently reported. And you're like, well, 
that's there, and then <laughs> make sure what to do with that information. Does that change your, your differential, or is that, or at least the likelihood that this is um, this is coming from the gallbladder? Yeah, I don't think that stones and sludge um, are necessarily different. I think if you see sludge in the gallbladder and patients have biliary colic, that is characteristic. I would treat them both the same. Um, many times it can be difficult to, f- you know, find sludge because it's such so so much harder to find, um, and and sludge is probably a little bit more reflective of stasis syndromes, things like that. But in general, though, I would treat stones and sludge the same. All right. So Eve has another episode of pain, and she decides she's ready to get her cholecystectomy. You refer her to a surgeon, and she has an uneventful laparoscopic cholecystectomy. She follows up three months later and reports she's struggling with bloating, diarrhea, and still some intermittent right upper quadrant abdominal pain. So first, how common is diarrhea after a cholecystectomy, and what should a primary care provider know about that, or how could we address it? Yeah, great question. Um, I think the the best time to have the conversation is before we send Eve to the operation. Um, This is post-cholecystectomy diarrhea. It's incredibly common. Depending on um, which paper you read, it can be anywhere from 5 to 15%. I think one of the largest series that just was published last year was about 13%. Um, So post-cholecystectomy diarrhea it's not very well understood. Um, the most likely scenarios that cause it are, I think, bilacid malabsorption. Um, and then there is uh, some data to show that the transit of the gut changes and it becomes faster. Um, so patients can report true frank diarrhea, increase in frequency in general of bowel movements or softer bowel movements. But about 5% of patients really have disabling diarrhea, and um, that's important to treat. And typically, we would treat with uh, a bilacid sequestrant, uh, whichever one that the patient tolerates. You can also use um, anti-motility agents such as loperamide um, and, things, and, and similar medications. Those can be quite helpful. But typically, these symptoms get better over time. So I think it's important to counsel uh, patients about that. What's the timeline for that that you would advise patients? Yeah, typically about three to six months. And in that time frame, I also would counsel patients about diet. So eating a relatively low-fat diet can be quite helpful in terms of the diarrhea. And if someone's doing well on the bile acid sequestrants, do you like have them wean off at some point to see if it's gone away? Or yeah, I, I mean, there are no real guidelines on this, so this is more of um, you know clinical, I guess, advice. Um, probably about three to six months, I would um, take them off, see how they do. It's really hard to take bile acid sequestrants on a long term basis. Because they're multiple times a day, or no? It's you know uh, they have to take it. They have to separate it from other medications. Mm-hmm. They have to be. They, it has to be taken with food. So it, they're not the easiest medications to take. So I think it's um, sense. You know, it's important for us to recognize that from a patient perspective. Mm-hmm. And then regarding this pain, how common is post-cholecystectomy pain, and is there a name for that? It is post-cholecystectomy <laughs> syndrome. <laughs> you talk more it's about how they came up with that name. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's, uh, it's a softball. Um, it's definitely common. It's, it's something that I think, it's, it's, you know, if you look at the studies, it's about 40%. And so it's, it's, uh, it is quite common. And 
we don't really have the greatest answers. Um, so I think it comes down to having um, careful patient selection and really goes back to what we were discussing earlier about uh, getting that history about biliary colic, how certain are you that this is truly biliary colic and, you know, waiting to see whether patients having multiple episodes and they're consistent. Because a lot of times what I see in my practice is patient complains of some abdominal pain. It's not really clear what the diagnosis is. And there's an empiric cholecystectomy and lo and behold, the pain's still there. Um, so it's, it's really important to uh, pick out the right patients and even if you do, I think about 30 to 40% will have these sort of um, lingering symptoms. They can then transition to more, you know, gas, bloating, flatulence, those kind of things. So they're a challenging clinical problem. And I know we, we promised this wasn't going to be the thrust of the episode, but while we're on the topic, is there any, so I guess sort of what sort of studies would you do after the fact, or is there any kind of workup that you would do um, just to make sure that you're not missing something else for a patient who's presenting with sort of post-colcystectomy pain? Yeah, I think that's a great point. What I would do is really break it down by time and the severity, I think, is the is the best clinical pearl I can give. So if your patient had had a cholecystectomy a few days before or a week before and now is complaining of pain, especially fairly severe pain, then we need to really think of an organic cause. It's either a bile leak or a retained stone, something that is related to what they presented with. And I think it's very important in those instances to consider imaging, uh, depending on the presentation. Now, it's, if it's a late presentation, then I think it's important to look at what else could this be. Could this be functional dyspepsia? Could this be another functional disorder? So I think it's looking for competing etiologies in the later phase, I think, becomes important. So taking us back in time, Eve decided not to get her cholecystectomy. And one night she wakes up in the middle of the night, she's in terrible pain, and she goes to the hospital. How do you evaluate her there in the hospital? Yeah, so I think uh, physical examination becomes extremely important, getting a good clinical history, assuming that Eve sort of gives the same, had the same clinical history that the pain started. It's a similar kind of pain and that, you know, in the past it had subsided, but this time it just kept on going that really she had to go to the emergency department. This is an instance where physical examination, the right upper quadrant uh, examination and the Murphy sign becomes very, very helpful. So in the subcostal, I would do a deep palpation in the subcostal region in the midclavicular line. And with deep inspiration, they usually have a hold and with severe pain. I think it'd be helpful to get a, another ultrasound. Most often that happens uh, if the patient hasn't already gotten a CT walking into the, right. <laughs> <laughs> into the ER, <laughs> right? Uh, but, you know, the why I say an ultrasound is the sonographic Murphy sign has been shown to be extremely predictive of cholecystitis. So um, a similar... Um, to our clinical exam. So those would be the tests I would get. I would get a hepatic function panel just to see where her liver tests are, where her uh, bilirubin is, and then a general exam in terms of how sick she is, if she's really having any inflammatory, systemic inflammatory type of syndrome. And who are patients in whom you would move to a HIDA scan? Yeah, so HIDA basically has two main functions. In this case, Eve has a very classic presentation of what biliary colic or cholecystitis most likely. Um, HIDA scan can be helpful for 
evaluating the patency of the cystic duct. That's what it's there for. So in patients with cholecystitis, as you, you know, we assume that the cystic duct is occluded from a stone. So um, there is no excretion of the, um, of the dye into the duodenum. So uh, where it can be incredibly helpful is patients with acalculus cholecystitis, sick patients in the ICU, things like that. The other um, instance where HIDASCAN can be quite helpful is by leaks. So if patient's having severe abdominal pain after cholecystectomy and really you want to look at a by leak, that, so for your, uh, in the hospital, those would be the two instances. In Eve's case, I don't think she would need a HIDASCAN. And what about an MRCP? Yeah, so MRCP can be helpful um, when there's a suspicion for a common bile duct stone. Uh, it's actually very well um, listed out. If I would encourage your listeners to look at the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, the ASG, has um, a guideline document where um, it breaks down into the probability of having a common bile duct stone. So low intermediate and high. And that's where the imaging test uh, decisions can become very helpful. Um, so if the patient uh, has a normal, you know, bilirubin presents with a classic cholecystitis kind of picture, you don't need any other tests. You go straight to a laparoscopic cholecystectomy, depending on your, the surgical expertise, you can get an intraoperative cholangiogram. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, if assuming her liver tests are normal or close to normal, um, would go down that pathway. Where MRI and MRCP can be quite helpful is patients with intermediate probability. So if a patient, let's say, presents with cholecystitis but has a bilirubin in the two to four range, um, and in those instances it's not really clear if there's a stone in the common bile duct or not or if the elevation in the bilirubin is just from the cholecystitis, that's where an MRCP can be quite helpful. The complementary test to that, depending on what you need, is an endoscopic ultrasound. But typically, the recommendation is to go to an MRI with MRCP in those patients with intermediate probability. If the patient has a high bilirubin above four, you don't really need any other tests. Those are the patients that we would take directly to an ERCP because there's a very high probability of a common bile duct stone. Have you ever considered a different way of practicing medicine? Whether you are burned out, need a change of pace, or are looking to supplement your income, locum tenens might be the solution for you. And if you're considering locum tenens, either full-time or on the side, you probably have a question or two, or 20. Fortunately, locumstory.com has the answers you need. It's packed with unbiased information and advice from physicians like you. Locumstory.com has nothing to sell. It is simply a resource for information. You'll find super handy tools that let you see locums trends for your specialty, compare different locums agencies, and there's even a quiz to help you decide if locums is right for you. Locumstory.com has answers to basic questions like, what is locum tenens? To more complex questions about pay ranges, taxes, licensing, and many others. The Locum Story blog also features content and perspectives from actual locums physicians who have firsthand locums experience. Locumstory.com is the perfect place to start if you want to learn more about locums. Okay, we've <laughs> we've we've made Eve had uh, worse than Grimmer um, outcomes as we progress. Let's let's go back in time again. She actually she had the elective cholecystectomy and feels like a million bucks, and we can just be happy about 
Eva's doing. Do we want to? Can we go back to? Oh the, no, you're going to make it. So she was hit by a car on the way to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <She's back laughs> hospital. So if, she, if she's there in the hospital and it's an uncomplicated cholecystitis, do you does she need to go sur- to surgery right away during that admission? What should be the plan for her there? Yeah, the recommendation is to, is the same uh, cholecystectomy in the same admission. Really, uh, you don't want to delay. Uh, cholecystectomy. In fact, the data is very strong for an early cholecystectomy. So early in most cases defined as within 72 hours, but in practice, really the same the next day or the day after kind of uh, time frame. So we're not letting the gallbladder cool off? I'm making yeah. hands here for the listener. Home. I think the, <laughs> the cool off, um, you, you hear that term a lot from um, the surgeons in many instances for, but for Cholecystectomy, as long as it's an uncomplicated um, cholecystitis, the data is very clear. Patients need to get their gallbladder out. That's the only thing that'll fix them. All right. Molly, we'll anything else you want to eat? No, no, thank you. <laughs> Sorry to take Did they find something horrible intraoperatively? No. Okay. Just antibiotics, <laughs> just while we're here. What's that? Antibiotics. Oh, great question. Yeah. Sure. Great question. Um, how long should we be keeping patients on antibiotics? Let's say she does get her, her gallbladder out. And what antibiotics? Yeah, so actually the, the, if it's an uncomplicated cholecystitis and patient goes to a cholecystectomy, they may not even need antibiotics. So um, only if they have any systemic inflammatory sort of response type symptoms, bacteremia, um, duration of antibiotics is so variable. Um, Probably seven to ten days, I think. Uh, less is more, um, as long as there is uncomplicated cholecystitis. Yeah, the duration thing. <laughs> it's going to be yeah. three days eventually, but you know, yeah. we're just not quite yeah. there yet. Yeah. I've heard, yeah, people moving the ball ball forward in that direction. Less is more. Less is less more. Is yeah, more. Exactly. <laughs> I did say that, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> Where were you trying to take that ball? Oh, nowhere. I was just, yeah. No, I was but when you, like, took her back in time, what were you? I was just going to make her better. That was all. Oh, okay. We can also get her better after the cholecystectomy here, just okay. so we had some sort of closure and a happy Excellent. ending for Eve. I, you know, I'm a romantic <laughs> at heart, Molly. You know this. Wonderful. Um, but w- w- whatever happened to Eve, it worked out great. She's doing fine. Um, she won <laughs> the lottery wonderful. afterwards. I guess we had a couple, and we may have hit on most of the points here and sort of the rapid questions at the end. I did want to ask the, the question, just because I've seen this in outpatient um, setting, is where someone has ab- abdominal pain, you do the ultrasound, and then... You, they come back with a gallbladder polyp and no stones, no other signs of inflammation, or uh, adenomyomatosis, which is you know one of those things I have to look up every single time to see how panicked I should be about that. Could you talk us through, and obviously I know this is sort of a broad topic, but sort of your general approach for, for this particular finding. Yeah, gallbladder polyps um, can be quite common. I think adenomyomatosis, just like you, I have to look it up every time. <laughs> it's, it's an inflammatory condition of the gallbladder, usually associated with stones. I think the take-home message from... Um, like the 30,000-foot view of gallbladder polyps is look at the age of the patient, any other associated health conditions, and the size of the polyp. So for your listeners, uh, patients over the age of 50 with a gallbladder polyp, typically a polyp greater than 6 millimeters in that age group, probably should, you know, the, the recommendation is to get a cholecystectomy. Any gallbladder polyp about a centimeter or a broad-based gallbladder polyp because it should also come out because the idea there is that we want to decrease the risk for gallbladder cancer. 
Um, there's some special situations if you happen to have patients with primary sclerosing cholangitis who have gallbladder polyps, they're a very high risk for gallbladder cancer. Um, those need to be resected. Um, special populations, Native Americans, Pima Indians, um, they have screening programs for gallbladder stones and polyps. So in those instances, they have a very high risk for gallbladder cancer. Great, that's usually helpful. Thank you. Are you screening patients from there? If you say you don't actually do the, the gallbladder removal. They do actually have screening programs okay. in certain select okay. populations, in Native American populations, they do. Just to go back to the gallbladder polyp, so an incidental small mm -hmm. gallbladder polyp, less than five millimeters, mm -hmm. um, in an otherwise healthy patient, is no cause for concern. Um, it really doesn't need any further follow-up. Mm -hmm. Usually six to 10 millimeter polyps, they say get a repeat ultrasound in six months to up up to a year, and if it stays stable, then they don't need any further follow-up. Oh, so they don't need, like, yearly follow-up? I have quite a few patients. Yeah, so the in the 6 follow. to 10 millimeter range, if it stays stable, they do say yearly follow-up, but it's when to stop is not really being described. Yeah. So I'm in the same boat, and all, this, all the patients that have these, unfortunately, seem to be in their 80s and 90s. I'm like, mm -hmm. how long am I doing this for? And you kind of <laughs> cross your fingers and grit your teeth every time you order the study that nothing else is going to show up, so right. it's, just, it's, it's right. challenging. And gallbladder cancer is rare, right, outside of primary sclerosis and cholangitis? Even in primary sclerosis. Yeah. Gallbladder cancer is rare, but it's a, it's a really tough cancer. Mm -hmm. Outcomes are not that great, so um, it's extremely rare, though. There's no endoscopic polypectomy. <laughs> <laughs> not for this podcast. <laughs> I don't want to confuse your listeners. <laughs> Thank you. Excellent. And then the adenomyomatosis, nothing to do about that. No, adenomyomatosis, I would just, um, you know, in the past it used to be thought of as a pre-malignant condition because mm -hmm. it was usually associated with stones, and um, but now it's considered an inflammatory condition. Um, just the finding of adenomyomatosis doesn't necessarily warrant a cholecystectomy at this point. Perfect. Well, what are your main take-home points for our listeners? I think the main take-home points are that gallstones are common, asymptomatic, Gallstone, patients with asymptomatic gallstones don't need a cholecystectomy. Um, biliary colic is very typical, so getting a good history and really being sure about the history before sending the patient to a cholecystectomy, I think, is a very important point because patients can have consequences from post-cholecystectomy syndrome to post-cholecystectomy diarrhea and their pain may not get better if you don't select the patients appropriately. Um, and then use imaging wisely. I think ultrasound, the lowly ultrasound is, uh, is quite valuable, <laughs> especially in this scenario. Right, tremendous. And anything that you'd like to plug at all? Uh, you know, there's a ton of guidelines. I think the one thing I would plug is, especially for um, you know, hosp people who do hospital medicine or residents, fellows, um, I think the one guideline that I found incredibly helpful that I use in my daily practice is that ASG guideline on the probability. So if you're ever stuck about who to call, what to do in those scenarios, that's a really clinically valuable guideline. So good luck. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much, Rahul. Oh, thank you. This was fun. This has been another episode of The Curbsiders, bringing you a little knowledge food for your brain hole. Yummy. 
Oh, that was Different nice. every time. I like that one. <laughs> get your show notes at thecurbsiders.com. It was haunting. And sign up for our mailing list to get our weekly show notes in your inbox. Plus, twice each month, you'll get our new Curbsiders Digest, recapping the latest practice-changing articles, guidelines, and news in internal medicine. We are committed to providing you with high-value, practice-changing knowledge. And to do that, we need your feedback. So please subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, or contact us at thecurbsiders at gmail.com. A reminder that many of our episodes are available for free CME credit for all healthcare professionals through VCU Health at curbsiders.vcuhealth.org. A special thanks to our writer, producer, and co-host for this episode, Dr. Molly Hoyblein, and to our whole team, Beth Garbs Garbatelli is still our executive producer with production and editing support from the team at Podpaste, and Elizabeth Proto runs our social media. Tima Karganov maintains our website, and Stuart Brigham composed our theme music. Until next time, I've been Dr. Nora Plout-Toronto. And I'm Dr. Molly Hoyblein. And as always, I remain Dr. Paul Nelson-Williams. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.